Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. English Puritans were Protestants who wished to reform England's state religion of Catholic influences. Their efforts met with stiff resistance. Escaping religious persecution, they sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to make a new life in the New World. Pastor Lance Rolston of the History of the Christian Church podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his unique views on this remarkable period in history. The Church of England reformers didn't comprise a single group, nor did they agree on all matters, so it's difficult describing them in general terms. One of the most influential groups was given the name Puritans because they insisted on the need to purify the church. As with so many of the labels that have been attributed to movements in the church, the word Puritan was originally a slam applied by its critics. Many Puritans were opposed to bishops. They argued that the highly structured church hierarchy of the Church of England was a late invention, not found in the Bible. They said the church ought to look to scripture as its constitution, not only for doctrine, but also in its organization and governance. Moderate Puritans responded that the Bible didn't actually give a prescription for a specific form of church government. What it had were principles that could be applied in different ways. Others insisted that the New Testament church was ruled by elders, called presbyters. Then others claimed that each congregation ought to be independent. They were creatively dubbed the independents. Baptists rose mostly among this last group. One of their early leaders was John Smythe, an Anglican priest who decided that the Church of England had not reformed far enough. He established an independent, and at that time illegal, congregation. As it grew, Smythe and his followers fled to Amsterdam. There, he continued his study of the Bible and came to the point of refusing to use translations of the Bible in worship, for only the original text had absolute authority. At church, he would read scripture in Hebrew and Greek and then translate the text as he preached. Partly through his study of scripture and partly through contact with the Mennonites, whose pacifism and refusal to take oaths he adopted, eventually he became convinced that infant baptism was wrong. He then rebaptized himself with a bucket and a ladle and proceeded to baptize his followers. The move of Smythe and his flock to Holland was financed by a wealthy lawyer named Thomas Helwes, who eventually broke with the ever-reforming Smythe. The breaking point of contention was over the taking of vows. Smythe rejected any form of vow, while, as a lawyer, Helwes considered them a necessary convention safeguarding social order. Helwes and his followers returned to England, where in 1611 they founded the first Baptist church in England. Eventually, and to really no one's surprise, a disagreement arose among English Baptists over theological issues similar to those that had risen between Calvinists and Arminianists. Those who favored the Arminian-flavored path were called General Baptists, while Calvinist-leaning Baptists were referred to as Particular Baptists. The balance that Elizabeth maintained in the Church of England began to wobble under James. While its theology was moderately Calvinist, its worship and governance followed the older Roman form. Puritans feared that a movement was underway to return to what they called Romanism. They didn't trust the new king, whose mother was none other than the Catholic Mary Stuart, also known as Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been executed by Elizabeth on the charge of treason in plotting to assassinate Elizabeth and take her throne. James didn't, in fact, favor Catholicism, though Puritans assumed that he would and hoped to gain concessions from him. They were repeatedly disappointed. James's goal was the same kind of absolutist monarchy then in place in France. In Scotland, his Presbyterian subjects hadn't allowed him to reign as he wished. He thought his chances for absolutism were better in the South. 
and to that end he strengthened the bishops of the English church as a prop to his own power. He declared, quote, without bishops there is no king, unquote, meaning that monarchy is better supported by a hierarchical church structure. James's religious policy was similar to Elizabeth's. The Anabaptists were persecuted because James was offended by their egalitarianism that threatened to upend the highly stratified English society. For goodness sake, we can't have peasants thinking they're as important as nobles. What a catastrophe if humble commoners mixed with blue bloods. So, the Anabaptists, with their calling everyone brother and sister, well, they had to be repressed. They were, brutally. And Catholics, who thought that James would be their guy, were regarded by him as agents of the Pope, who everyone knew wanted to get rid of James. James said that if the Pope acknowledged his right to rule and condemned regicide, which a few of the more extreme Catholics were pushing for, James would tolerate the presence of Catholics in his realm. Presbyterians, whom the king had come to hate in Scotland, were barely tolerated in England. James did grant them minor concessions, but only to keep them from making trouble. Tensions between Anglican bishops and Puritans grew to a boil during James's reign. In 1604, Richard Bancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury, had a series of canons approved that were offensive to the Puritans. One affirmed that Episcopal hierarchy was an institution of divine origin, and without it, there could be no true church. Well, that ostracized the many Protestant churches in Europe that had no bishops. Puritans saw it as provoking a showdown between themselves and the Church of England. Some assumed that it was all preparation by the Church of England to reunite with Rome. James called Parliament to sit for the approval of new taxes to complete some of England's projects. The House of Commons included many Puritans who joined others in an appeal to the king against Bancroft's canons. James convened a committee at Hampton Court to consider the canons over which he presided. When one of the Puritans made reference to the church being governed by a presbytery, James announced that there could be no closer connection between the monarchy and a presbytery than there could be between God and the devil. All attempts at compromise ended at that point. The only result of the meeting was that a new translation of the Bible was approved. It appeared in 1611 and is known today as the King James Version. Produced at a high point in the development of the English language, Along with the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Bible became a classic that profoundly influenced later English literature. But this marks the beginning of a growing hostility between the House of Commons and the bishops of the Church of England. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Late in 1605, what's known as the Gunpowder Plot was discovered. A repressive law against Catholics was issued the previous year on the pretext that they were loyal to the Pope rather than the King. The real purpose of the law was to collect funds. Authorities used it to impose heavy fines and confiscate property. Catholics came to the conclusion the solution was to get rid of the king. A property was rented whose cellars extended below the room where Parliament met. 
Several wine barrels were filled with gunpowder and set under the room. The plan was to detonate them as the king opened Parliament. This would rid England of James and many Puritan leaders. But the plot was discovered, the conspirators executed. This unleashed a rabid wave of anti-Catholic sentiment in England that saw many arrested and imprisoned. James used the whole affair as a way to levy even heavier fines on Catholics and confiscate even more property. After those first years of his reign, James tried to rule without Parliament. But English law stipulated that it alone could approve new taxes. So in 1614, when his finances were desperate, James relented and again convened Parliament. New elections brought in a House of Commons even more stubborn than the previous. So James dissolved it and again tried to rule without it. He turned to new tariffs that he could levy without Parliament's approval. He borrowed from bishops and the nobility. Then the Thirty Years' War broke out. Frederick, King of Bohemia, was James' son-in-law, but James offered no support. English Protestants named James a traitor, a coward. He replied that he wanted to help, but that the Puritans held the purse and the war was expensive. Finally, in 1621, James reconvened Parliament, hoping that the House of Commons would agree to new taxes with the proviso that some, at least, of the revenue would support German Protestants in the war. But it was discovered that James planned to marry his son and the heir to the English throne to a Spanish princess, a Catholic Habsburg. Such an alliance was regarded by Puritans as an abomination, and so James once again dissolved the House of Commons and arrested several of its leaders. The marriage plans were abandoned for other reasons, and in 1624 James once again called a meeting of Parliament, only to dissolve it anew without obtaining the funds that he required. Shortly thereafter, he died and was succeeded by his son, Charles, who had been a good student of his father's routine with Parliament. English Puritans welcomed Charles I to the throne with less enthusiasm than they had his father. Charles said that kings are, quote, little gods on earth, unquote. Puritans knew this didn't bode well for their future relations, nor did it help that Charles immediately married a Roman Catholic princess, Henrietta Marie de Bourbon, raising the specter of a Catholic heir to the English throne. The relationship between the crown and the mostly Puritan parliament went from bad to worse. Puritan antagonism toward the king rose in 1633 when the king appointed William Laud as Archbishop of Canterbury. Laud embarked on a policy of high Anglicanism with a strong sacramentalism and a theological slant towards Arminianism that tweaked the Calvinist Puritans. In what proved his undoing, Charles tried to impose on the Scottish Church the Anglican Book of Common Prayer in 1637 which one Scott called, quote, the vomit of Romish superstition, unquote. When a marketplace grocer named Jenny Geddes heard the dean of St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh read from the new prayer book, she stood up, threw her stool at him, yelling, Devil curse your colic on your stomach, false thief, dare you say mass in my ear? Yep, them Scots, peaceful lot they are, which I get to say because I are one. Jenny's reaction was a foretaste of a brewing rebellion. Riots broke out in Edinburgh, and in early 1638, the Scottish formalized their opposition to King Charles's innovation by establishing the National Covenant. Many signed it in their own blood, making it clear that they'd die before submitting to Laud's Anglicanism. Charles led two military campaigns known as the Bishops' Wars from 1639 to 40 in an effort to quell the Scottish rebellion. Both were turned back. The Scottish army then occupied northern England and threatened to march south. In November 1640, King Charles had to once again convene Parliament. Never had there been a body more hostile to the monarch. They immediately passed a law forbidding him to dissolve it without its consent. 
This came to be known as the Long Parliament, since it stayed in session for 20 years. Archbishop Laud was charged with treason and imprisoned in the Tower of London. The conflict between King and Parliament reached a boiling point. Charles was convinced that Puritan members of Parliament had committed treason by conspiring with the Scots to invade England. Charles, accompanied by 400 soldiers, burst into the House of Commons in January of 1642, planning to arrest them. But the men had been warned and fled. This attack on Parliament by armed troops was an egregious violation of British rights. Charles realized his error, and a few days later, fearing now for his own safety, fled London. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.